Hey, Pursuit, let's pray this morning. Father God, I just come before you, Lord. God, I just lay myself at your feet this morning. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you will speak through me, God, in great power, that it will be your truth and your truth alone. I pray, Lord, let every word that comes from my mouth this morning not fall to the ground, but bring forth its fruit in your holy name. Amen. If you guys turn in your Bibles or your phones or whatever you got to Matthew 5, 13, um, I want to tell you up front this morning, the message is going to be a little different. Uh, it's going to be potentially uh, very negative at first. Uh, it could be perceived as being negative. It could be perceived as uh, something very difficult, something very bad. But I also want to point out that it will equally be for many people a life-changing, life-altering, eternity-saving message. I think that this message this morning uh, is directly from the Lord in a very unique way, and I think that it will hit our hearts and hit our minds in a way that simply can't be faked or duplicated. And I say that not as a confidence in myself at all, and not in a confidence in my ability to communicate, not in any realm of confidence about me, but I know the source of the message, and I know the source is from heaven. I know that the word is from God, and I know that that is his truth, and so I'm confident that I, I could not over-communicate, under-communicate. I could not mess up the truth this morning. That's how powerful it is. That's how much I believe in it. And so my heart all week, and especially over the last three or four days, is that God would just give us eyes to see and ears to hear, and that his spirit would just move in our hearts. And I shared a video this week on uh, my personal social media page. Um, I was just kind of overwhelmed uh, in, a, in, a, in a way, you know, I wasn't angry and I wasn't frustrated, but I was just overwhelmed by the presence of God uh, one night this week. I heard a famous preacher on TV uh, start to slam America and say that America was a godless nation. Um, and, and I don't even want to talk about this morning whether it was a godless, America is a godless nation or not a godless nation. That's not the point uh, of the message. I'll leave that between the nation and God. Um, but the problem that hit me so in just such a deep way, as he began to lay out blame and criticize people, he criticized everything and anybody but the church. He criticized uh, the president. He criticized um, different political parties, foreign countries, uh, other religions, uh, he, uh, sinners and evil and wickedness, as he put out there. Um, and he just went on and on and on and on. And he never one time brought uh, any blame against himself or against the preachers and prophets and evangelists and teachers and shepherds of this nation or the American church. And I just hit me in such a deep way. And as I went to pray, I felt uh, like the Lord began to shift my heart dramatically. Uh, and, and I basically just came out uh, with this video, just kind of just, I felt like the Lord was leading me to do it. And this was the, at the end of the day, this is the point that I think the Lord was just weighing heavy in my heart was that uh, America uh, is only going to go uh, in a form of righteousness or in a way of holiness equal to that of the church itself. Uh, and, and, and I ended the video with this one line, and I want to. And this morning, I just want to take a few minutes at the beginning uh, to to read some of the scripture in Matthew five thirteen and to lay this out. But this was the end point that if America is truly a godless nation, it's only because the American church has no power inside of it. A powerless church is always going to equal a godless nation. Period. That's the way that it works. And there was a lot of people that got it and a lot of people that didn't get it. 
And I wanted to lay out this morning in Matthew 5, 13, uh, I believe the heart of God towards his church here in this moment. And we're just going to start there and we're going to go a couple other places. But this is what Jesus says, Matthew 5, 13. Now, this is the first way that Jesus Christ describes his church. This is the first way he describes it. Uh, when he's laying the groundwork, and he, he's opening up the idea of what the church will be like and how the church will operate and what the result of his big C church, the body of Christ, his movement, his revolution, his people, what that will be in the earth. And this is what he says in Matthew 5, 13. He says, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty? Again, it is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it in its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. This is the way, this is Jesus' words, and I want to remind you of the promise that he made in Matthew 16, that it is Jesus Christ himself who established the church, died for the church, gave birth to the church, and builds the church. Jesus is the shepherd. Jesus is the living, active king who is in charge of building the church and managing the church and blessing the church and uh, disciplining the church. Jesus is the boss of the church. He's not a figment of our imagination. He's not a philosophical idea. He is a living and active king. He is in charge. He is in control, and he is sovereign, and he is the one building, managing, and leading the church. Jesus is, and this is kind of the job description. This is the result. This is he lays out ahead of time, and he says, this is who you are. This is what the church is. This is what the body of believers will be. You are the salt of the earth. I want to take a second and I want to point something out to you that I think a lot of people miss. It doesn't say uh, you will act like the salt of the earth. He, it doesn't say that, that, that like the salt of the earth, you will live like this. He says you are the salt of the earth. This is who you are in the earth. You're the salt of the earth. Now, we know a lot about salt and common everyday uses like taste and, and it adds savory stuff and it makes vegetables that nobody likes kind of tasty. But the reality of salt is that in this day and age, it was one of the most valuable commodities in existence. And its primary use was used for preservation. That the, they would put it on dead things and it would hold back the, the decay of death. That you would put salt on fish coming out of the ocean and it would keep them fresh for a long time. That you would put salt on other meats and salt in, in water and put vegetables in it and it would refresh them and keep them whole. That, that salt was a preservation uh, commodity. That, that this was this, this idea that salt had the power to actually hold back the works of death. That's what salt did uh, in, the, in the, this day and age. It's what it still does today. But this is the point that, that Jesus is saying. He comes up and he says, listen, you're not going to act like this. This is who you are. You've got to understand this. I want you to look at this not from our point of view, but from God's point of view, from Jesus' point of view. He said, there's going to come a time when I will be given up to the Pharisees, to the religious leaders, and I will die on a cross for your sins. Uh, but then I will conquer death through the resurrection, and then I will leave, and I will send my spirit in its place. And then once the Holy Spirit comes, the church will be born, uh, and the power will move forward. And he says, and in that moment and in that setting, you will be the salt of the earth. You are the salt of the earth. Jesus says, I'll be gone. The spirit will be in you. And the only thing here on this planet that is holding back the darkness and holding back death is you. From God's point of view, you're the salt of the earth. You are the hope of the world because of the hope of Jesus that is inside of you. He says, you're the light of the world that gives light to the darkness. 
If you remove the salt or we lose its saltiness, there's nothing preventing death to become more dead. There's nothing preventing evil and wickedness to prevail and to keep moving forward and growing darker and darker and darker. If you remove the light from the world, there's nothing but darkness and the darkness will just get darker and darker and darker and darker. This is the thing that Jesus lays out from day one. This is the Sermon on the Mount. This is one of the very first things that ever comes out of his mouth, not just in the description of the church, but in general. He says, I want you to know up front, once I say save your life. Once I die for your sins and I fill you with the Holy Spirit while you are on this earth, while you are walking on this planet, while you are living in whatever generation you were born into and whatever nation you were born into and you put your faith in me and I save your life, this is who you are from that point forward. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world and it is you and you only and the hope and the truth and the spirit that is inside of you that gives hope to the darkness and to the lost out there. It's you. He goes, this is your role. And you got to think about it from God's point of view. He knows how good heaven is. He knows how good eternity is. He knows what it is to be in his presence. The fact that he leaves you on this earth is because he has a desire for you since you have been saved to reach out and to save everyone else around you. That if he removes you, there won't be a city on a hill for the darkness to look into to see the hope of the light of Jesus Christ. And so he leaves you. But what happens if we lose our saltiness? What happens if we cover up our light? What happens if we hide the truth that's inside of us? We become worthless. Because we're not operating in the thing that Jesus Christ called us to do. The one thing he called us to be in this life was the light in the world, the salt of the earth. And if we lose our saltiness, if we lose our ability to preserve, if we lose our ability to shine in the darkness, then what hope is there for those who are lost and those who are dark? This is why Jesus takes this so serious. This is why I struggle with the pastor who blames a godless nation on godless people. You only have a godless nation if there are no godly people living in it. Sin only overwhelms the darkness, and the darkness can't exist if there's light. If darkness is winning, it's because the light is hiding. If death and evil and wickedness are growing greater and greater and greater, it's because the salt is no longer salty, because the truth that is in us is being hidden by us. I think that we have a huge misconception of the judgment of God and the wrath of God. And I don't have the time to get into it or go there, but you need to go to Romans 1.18 and you need to read through there. And what you'll see is that when truth, this is what God said, he goes, when truth is suppressed, the truth of me, my truth, when the truth of God is suppressed and the human mind believes a lie over that truth and we hide the truth, the result is ever extending darkness. If you go through and you read from Romans 1.18 down to the end of the chapter, what you'll see is that God's wrath most of the time, it's not fire and brimstone. God's wrath is when you hide his truth, he lifts his hand, and he lets you go exactly where you want to go, into darkness and into wickedness and into evil. The consequence for walking away from the truth of God, yeah, the wages of sin are death, but the practical consequences is that there is nothing preventing you from getting super dark, super evil. And he said that we go and 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 we go to the point that we are making up new evil things to do and say. 
The consequence of hiding the truth of God is the expansion of evil and wickedness and darkness. If America is a godless nation at this point, it's because the American church has lost its saltiness. It's because we've quit being the light of the world. We have become, in all essence, worthless to the cause of Christ. And I struggle, not with the things that I'm about to say. I've never believed anything more certain in my whole life than the next 25, 30 minutes of this message. But this is the thing that I want you to understand, is that at this point, Jesus Christ, he looks into the church before he looks into a nation. He looks into his people before he looks into a nation. And we live in a, a weird, spoiled, selfish, idol-induced church. And because of that, we're going to struggle with the things that I'm about to say. But the things that we forget is that Jesus says, I have answers and I have uh, things that I will do, that I will, I will be, that I will pour out on a church that loses its saltiness. He said, I have, a, I have a management system in place. He said, I'm paying attention and I, I don't just let things go. Not in my church, not in my people. I'm a good father. I'm going to bring discipline for their sake and for the hope of the world. Nobody reads the back half of that. If you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. Now, Jesus doesn't just say things randomly. I want you to understand what he just said. He said that if the salt loses its saltiness, if the salt quits being the salt of the earth, it's not good for anything, and it can't be made salty again. And the only thing it'll be good for now is to be thrown out and to be trampled under the feet of men. That there is a consequence in this life. There is a consequence for the body of Christ. Stop being the body of Christ. There's a consequence for the salt of the earth that loses its saltiness. There is a consequence for the light of the world that covers up their light and allows darkness to move forward. There is a consequence when the church stops being the church. There is a consequence when the church stops Loving people, loving God and representing the gospel of Jesus Christ. What kind of good father would look over the last 50 years and the multiple generations of this American church and not rain down judgment on the church? In Hebrews, uh, Paul goes on to teach something that most people ignore, that nobody wants to talk about, that nobody wants to give into. It's Hebrews 6, 1 through 7. Uh, I'll let you read 1 through 6. It's more on a personal level, but 7 comes to uh, the, the body, the, the national level, the big level, the big seed church. This is what it says. He, he, all through it, he's talking about uh, people who are given the hope of Jesus, uh, and then falling into it, feeling the power of God, feeling the presence of God, feeling the, the power of the age to come, uh, fully understanding, going through, and then not living it out. What are the consequences of that? 
And he gives this analogy in verse 7 of land with rain pouring on it, with a lot of rain pouring on it, that, that uh, it, it reveals the, the land itself, the, the, what's going on in the heart of the land itself. If, if rain is being poured out, what the land produces, it reveals the heart of the land. This is what it says. Land that drinks in the rain, often falling on it, and that produces a crop useful to those for whom it is farmed, receives the blessing of God. But land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and is in danger of being cursed. In the end, it will be burned. So he says, if there's land that's getting rain often, that's getting rain poured out upon it, and that land produces a crop, listen, this is the key word, that is useful to those for whom it is farmed, receives the blessing of God. Who is, it, uh, who is it being produced for? Who is it being farmed for? It's being farmed for the lost, for those who are in the dark, for those who don't know Jesus. He says, if you have land, this is believers, this is the church, and, I, and God says, I pour out my rain on it, I pour out my spirit on it, I pour out blessings on it, I, I pour out my word and my truth, and I give revelation, and I open up the church, and then you produce a crop that is useful for the world that is useful for the lost, that is useful for the sinner, that is useful, that, that, that you shine the light, you're bearing fruit, that I pour out rain on the land and that land produces fruit and, 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 and produce that is useful uh, to those whom it's being farmed for, that I will pour my blessing out on it. But then he says, but if there is land that produces thorns and thistles, it is worthless and is in danger of being cursed. In the end, it will be burned. I don't wanna, I don't wanna make any bones about this. I just wanna speak directly into the heart of the American church. There is no other nation in the history of the world that has had the Spirit of God poured out on it more than the American church. There is no other nation in the world except maybe Israel uh, that was started and founded in the name of Jesus Christ. This American nation, we came here in pursuit of freedom of religion and God blessed us in a crazy way. There were two great revivals, the first great awakening, the second great awakening, one in England and one in America. Before the signing of the Declaration of Independence, was a huge move of God. There were preachers that signed the Declaration of Independence. Do you think that a couple of scrub colonies could beat the greatest power in the world without the hand of God on it? That the first colleges that existed in this country, they were Bible colleges? That God poured out his spirit, that God poured out his truth, that God poured out his word, that every home in this country for hundreds of years had a Bible sitting on every shelf when there were other nations that didn't have a single Bible in the entire region or continent. That we have had more preachers, we have more evangelists, that we've had more prophets, that we've had more shepherds, that we've had more teachers than any other nation in the world. Statistically, this is a fact, not an opinion. We have more seminaries. We have more generations of teachers. We have more Bibles and more versions of it. We have had more, we, we over and over and over again in every single use of the thought, God has poured out his spiritual reign on this nation. We even stamped under God on our money. We put him in the pledge. We were absolutely a Christian nation, a God-fearing nation, and he blessed us abundantly. But in our blessings, we have forgotten the King of kings and the Lord of lords. In our blessings, we have tried to scrub him from our history. In our blessings, in our freedom that he has given us, instead of pursuing him, we have pursued everything else. Over the last 50 years, multiple generations of the church have gotten lost inside themselves. 
We have built massive religious systems. We have divided ourselves among multiple denominations. And instead of representing Jesus Christ and the gospel and the light of the world, we spent the last 50 years hiding in our own churches, battling each other for power and control, tearing each other down, devouring each other. We've tolerated blasphemous teaching like the prosperity gospel. We've spent years enamored with wealth and power and control. We've, we've spent years developing this religious mindset just like the Pharisees. We aren't pro-Christ. We're just against rule breakers. Over and over and over and over again. And more than anything else, and this is such a heaviness in my heart, more than anything else, the greatest sin of the American church is its silence. It's silence over the last 50 years. It's silence when they were taking prayer out of God's school. It's silence. We have tolerated wicked and evil, not in the nation. We have tolerated wicked and evil in the church. And because we have tolerated wicked and evil in the church, that is why evil is winning in our nation. We have become so selfish, so self-consumed. We have even our pastors, our teacher leaders, we have become addicted to fame and success and popularity. What difference is there in the American church and any other social club in the country? There is definitely no power in it. This is who we are. This is the American church as a whole. Yeah, there's a remnant. Yeah, there's people who have been faithful. Yeah, there, there, there's the, but as a whole, we have been cowards. We have been silent. And we have been consuming ourselves because we put our trust in everything else but God. We lift up our hearts to everything else but God. We live against things but not for Christ. You know what bothers me? It, it, and listen, this new thing, the cuties thing that everybody's revolting against. I get it. It's a movie on Netflix, and it's sexualizing 11-year-old girls, and it angered me. It really did. But do you know what I started to get more frustrated at? Everybody taking such a holy stand against it. Everybody going on Facebook, and, I, you know, every dollar is a vote. Every dollar is a vote to cancel your membership. This is evil, and this is wicked, and we need to get rid of Netflix. Do you know why the CEO of Netflix believed that he could put Cuties, a movie about 11-year-old girls being over-sexualized, and give it to the American public? Because he believed in his heart and mind that you would be okay with it. Because you tolerate all other forms of wickedness and evil. Does it take a movie over-sexualizing 11-year-old girls before you start to care about the damages of pornography? Do you know why pedophilia is moving the way that it is in our nation? Because the American church has been silent and quiet about the ever-expanse wicked of pornography. We've tolerated it in the pulpits. We've tolerated it in our marriages. We've tolerated it in our families. We've tolerated it in the church. We've been okay with it. We've been silent about it. We've been addicted to it. We don't talk about it. We keep it down. We have allowed pornography to take over multiple generations and the thing that you need to understand about sin and wickedness is when you tolerate it, you give it one inch, it's going to take a mile. Pedophilia is now living and sitting on the, the room of the Senate floor every single week about to get passed because the church has been silent about the ever-expanding use of pornography. It's destroying the minds of our generation, but the church has been silent. You let them put out one movie from France about the over-sexualization of life, and you lose your minds? You should have lost your minds 20 years ago. 
You don't, get, you don't have the right as the American church to be upset when the world creates a movie like that, when that is the result of us tolerating wicked and evil in the pulpit in our own lives and in our churches. We are weak, we are silent, and we live in a chain, an addiction in our own world, and we just try to hide it. We've become powerless. We've become powerless. So cancel your membership to Netflix. Do that. And then in a week from now, after you're so proud of yourself about your little Facebook post, and you're so proud of yourself for standing on the right side of pedophilia, you'll go right back to your powerless life, to your religious life, to your comfortable life, and you will go on being silent about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And there'll just be another movie. But here's the problem. The next movie, some people will be upset, but not as many as this time. And the next movie, a little bit of people will be upset, but not as many. And then all of a sudden, pedophilia, child pornography, it'll be legalized, and it'll be everywhere. And you say, absolutely not, no way. The churches said the same thing in the early 1920s and the early 1930s before they legalized pornography. This is the world we live in. And it's not evil's fault for being evil. It's those who have the answer, those who have the light, those who have been placed on this earth to be the salt of the earth, losing its saltiness. You've been chasing everything else except for Jesus, living for everything else except for Jesus. And when you do take a stand, Mr. and Mrs. American Christian, when you do take a stand, it's never for the cause of Christ. It's against something. It's against something. If we were just as passionate about the cause of Christ and the love of Christ as we were against this movie, we would have an international revival. But that's the Pharisee inside of us. That's the Pharisee inside of us. We don't like it when the world breaks our rules. That's the Pharisee inside of us. Where's the love of God? Where's the passion for the gospel? So what is Jesus to do with a church like this? What is Jesus to do with the American church? I'm telling you, there may have been a generation or two or three that produced good bearing fruit, but I don't think there's anybody on the planet with half a brain that can look and say over the last generation or two, we've been producing fruit. We have been worthless and we are in danger of being cursed and in the end we'll be burned. What does that even mean? How does God handle churches? How, how does God manage that? When you talk about that, what does that look like? Well, I'm glad you asked. Jesus wrote seven letters to churches in Revelation. There's several reasons why Jesus did this, but one of the primary ones, I believe, is to give us a New Testament look into how Jesus himself will build the church and manage the church. In these seven letters, he goes into the churches and he, he praises the good deeds. He praises the things they're doing right. Two of the churches, uh, they didn't have anything uh, negative to say. They were just, they were, they were doing good. They were bearing fruit. They were living for the cause of Christ. They were loving God and loving people. And Jesus encouraged them. And then uh, there was one church, Laodicea, that didn't have anything positive going on. Uh, they, they, they just consumed with their wealth and being comfortable uh, and they believed that they were clean, but they weren't. And he said, you're lukewarm, and I'm going to vomit you from my mouth. They didn't get any positive accolades. They weren't doing anything. 
But then there were four churches, and, and, th- and this is the reason I'm focusing on the four churches, because there are four churches where he, he says, listen, you're doing some things well, but I got some things I'm holding against you. And I want you to look at the way that Jesus responds to the church who quits being the church, and specifically the sins that he's looking at here. This is just, I'm going to read all of them. I'm going to read Ephesus. Um, he goes, yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. So I, I want you to understand that you'll you realize in the first couple sentences of that chapter and, and, and in the first chapter of Revelation as, as uh, Jesus is laying out the, the lampstand that represents the lie, that represents you being the church. And Jesus said, I'm I'm coming to you. I'm being honest with you. I'm telling you this is something I'm holding against you. This is sin. You're not uh, loving people, loving me. You're not not doing the things you were doing at first. Uh, And I want you to understand I'm going to give you time to repent. But if you do not repent and you do not return to your first love and you do not return to loving me and loving people and representing the, the gospel and throwing out the cause of Christ and living for this, I am going to. This is Jesus. If you do not repent, I will come myself. Jesus, I will come to you and I will remove your lampstand from its place. Meaning that if you are not going to represent me, you won't represent anything. That Jesus himself will come and take the lampstand. It goes on in uh, the church of of Pergamum. He says this in, 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 in 2.14, Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by uh, eating food, sacrificed to idols, and by committing sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. So this is Jesus, and this was the sin that they were committing. You were, you were tolerating false teaching. You were tolerating false gospels. You were buying into it. I'm coming to you, and I'm telling you that is of the devil, that is wicked, that is evil. You, I'm giving you time to repent, but if you don't repent, I'm going to come myself with the sword, and I am gonna, I'm going to fight them. I'm going to wage war against you. Uh, and he goes on uh, in the next church, and uh, he says, Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel. Notice the thing that Jesus struggled with the most in the churches is their toleration of sin, their toleration of wickedness, not in the world, but in the church. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. I want, I want to be really clear here. A lot of people think that this is some evil, wicked, false prophet, wolf in sheep's clothing. Uh, this is a Christian who's gone way off the rails. God says, Jesus says, I'm giving her time to repent but she's not. So this is a toleration. This isn't Satanism. This is a toleration of, of wicked and evilness inside of the church, inside of Christians' lives, inside of the Christian church, inside the pulpit, inside the denominations. It's tolerating wicked and evil inside the church itself. I have given her time to repent of immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering 
and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches the hearts and minds and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Now I need to be super clear here. This is Jesus practically doing this in this life. This is not judgment in heaven after death or after the rapture. This is in the moment. He says, I will come and I will have my way. I will come and I will bring suffering. I will come and I will discipline the church. They tolerate wickedness. They tolerate evil. And I am giving them time to repent. But if they don't, it is me. I will come to my house and I will bring judgment and I will do it so that everyone will know that I am the Lord who searches the hearts and the minds that I am a living and an active king. He says that if you will not with your life, talking to the church, if you will not with your life show the world who I am, I will show the world who I am by the way that I discipline you. That's terrifying to me. He goes on to the other churches with the similar things. This is the result, and this is why I share those. I need you to understand that we are not a part. Pursuit family. In the real C church, the big C church, those who are truly believers of Jesus, I need you to understand this is not a religious system that we are a part of. We are a part of the body of Christ. And if you have put in your faith in him, you don't get a vote to how he operates and to how he works. Your opinion doesn't matter. The way that you vote and what you think about church policy, none of that stuff matters. These are all religious things that we've created on our own to make ourselves feel good. Jesus is the one managing the church. Jesus is the one building the church. Jesus is the one paying attention. Jesus is the one judging the church. Jesus is the one that's empowering, pruning, and disciplining. Jesus is the one that's in control. And this is the letters of Jesus to churches. You need to understand this about our Savior King. He's not going to let us fail. He's not going to let the church be stopped even by itself. Death will not prevail against it, but neither will us. We won't either. We won't mess it up. He will come and he will get involved. Three, four generations now, the church has gotten weaker and weaker and weaker. And more silent and more silent and more silent. And we've tolerated more and more wickedness inside of the pulpit. And I believe beyond the shadow of a doubt, Jesus Christ would be a liar if he does not come and bring judgment against the church in this country and in this nation. This is the thing that, that the Lord has laid so heavy on my heart. That truly in history, there has never been another nation that has been given what we've been given in terms of spiritual blessing, in terms of the word, in terms of truth, in terms of a, a start we were established as a Christian nation. And right now, Christians want to yell and scream that. Stop yelling and screaming that. That's condemning you. <laughs> that means we started as a Christian nation. Preachers signed the Declaration of Independence. God moved. There were churches everywhere. The nation was a Christian nation. The fact that it's not right now isn't because the devil's a good devil and it isn't because sin's you know, good at being sinful or evil people are good at being evil. It's because the church quit being the church. So I hear all these Christians talking about return us to the roots. Won't you stop screaming about returning us to the roots of this nation and start asking yourself, why are we no longer that way? 
If America is not a godless nation, it's because we failed at being the light of the world. And they will not be held responsible for that before we will be held responsible for that. We are at a turning point in our nation. We are at a turning point in history. I believe beyond the shadow of a doubt, God in this moment, and I've hesitated to say this clearly up to this point, but I know beyond the shadow of a doubt in my heart, I'll go to the grave believing this, that the Lord himself is bringing judgment against this nation and he's starting with the American church. On Saturday morning, I was just... uh, I was just overwhelmed with the presence of God. I couldn't really study. I was just praying and just got lost. And then yesterday morning, I came in early. I woke up at like three in the morning and um, I studied and just prayed at the house and then hung out with the kids for a minute. And then I came to the church very early. And as soon as I walked in my office and I started to pray, turn the lights off and had some music on. And I had the presence of God just fall into the room like one of the ways I've never really felt before. And the Lord began to drive something into my heart that was so clearly as if he was speaking it himself. And he told me to go and write it down. And so I went and I wrote it down and I'm going to read it to you. I'm nobody and neither is our church to be honest. You know, on a good day, we may have however many people, but we're not massive Nobody knows my name. Nobody's going to listen. At first, there'll be a lot of opportunity to just shrug our shoulders and turn away, go to a different church that's preaching something a little happier. But what I want to tell you right here and right now is that what I'm about to read to you, I believe beyond the shadow of a doubt, is the voice of the Lord. And in all my years of preaching, I very rarely publicly have ever said As the Bible would say, thus saith the Lord, like this is the Lord. But I believe beyond the shadow of a doubt that this is the Lord to the point I'm willing to risk my whole character and reputation on it. I don't mind being made a fool for Jesus. But I'm going to read this letter and then I'm going to say a thing and then we're going to close in prayer. I believe like the letters in Revelation, I feel in my heart that this is, if the, if the Lord was writing a letter to the American nation, this is what it would be. And I want to be clear. I believe in my heart that this is words from the Lord for the American church and for this nation. What more can be said? I have sent my servants. What more can be said? I have sent my servants, the prophets, to warn this nation of its wickedness for two generations, and they have all been ignored. What more can be said? A nation consumed by wickedness is one thing. A nation who legalizes wickedness and celebrates it is another thing. What more can be said? For leaders and governments to tolerate wickedness is one thing. To have national leaders boast of their roles in the legalization of evil is something totally different. Didn't I make it clear the path of my judgment? Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. 
Have not the leaders of this nation lived wickedly and approved of those who live wickedly as well? Have they not worked hard to drive all righteousness away? Have they not with full knowledge attacked righteousness simply because it is righteous? What more can be said? Has this nation not been blessed beyond all other nations on the earth? Do they not remember who blessed them? Do they not remember they used to be one nation under God? No, they don't remember. They have gone beyond forgetting but worked hard to remove me from history. Do the generations not desire in their heart to be rid of me? Will I not give them the desires of their hearts? Will I not remove my hand fully as they wish? Will I not give them what they so desire? Will I not give them their nation free of me? What more can be said? Has this nation and the living generations not been given more knowledge in their lifetime than all of history before it? Yet they have trusted their own foolishness more than any other generation before them. What else can be done for them? They have been given the truth, but they rejected it. They'll go beyond rejecting my truth, but work hard to destroy it. What else can be done for them? They were given truth, but they chose lies. What more can be said? Has this nation and the living generations not been given the gospel as no other nation on earth before them? Look at history. Who has had the light of my truth more clearly, more abundantly, more freely than those living now? What other nation on earth has been so free to worship me as this nation? What other nation on earth has been so free to seek me as this nation? What other nation on earth has been so free to serve me as this nation? Yet they use their freedom to reject me. What other nation has been given so many years and so many opportunities to believe in my son Jesus? What else can be given? What more can be said? Will I not leave this nation to itself? Will it not devour itself? Is there even a need for an enemy nation? Won't this nation kill itself? What other nation on the earth would be so foolish to waste its young attacking America? Even a blind man can see America won't survive its own divisions. Won't this nation feed on themselves until it is all consumed? The other nations of the world will not even fight each other over the spoil left behind by America. Yes, this nation will fall, but no enemy will come. The enemy is already present. Will I need to send famine, pestilence, and the sword? Will they not be consumed by their own chosen destruction? What more can be said? Will my church go untouched? How could they? Have they not been silent? Have they not hidden their light? Have they not turned off their lights, leaving the lost in the darkness? Have they not put their trust in the things of this world? Have they not given themselves over to the lust of their eyes? Have my pulpits not been filled with cowards? Have hirelings not taken over? As all hirelings won't, as all hirelings won't, these shepherds will leave their sheep when wolves come. Won't I let my church lean on what they trust so much? Won't I let their wealth save them? Won't I let their government save them? Won't I let their comfort save them? Won't I learn from them and be silent as evil approaches? What more can be said? Will I abandon my church? Never. Though they are faithless, I am faithful. There are some who have served me with their full heart and others who have been faithful. Will I not once more and again call to my sheep? Will I not always preserve my church? Can my purpose be thwarted? No. Will I abandon my church? Never. 
Will I let my church go on saltless? Never. Will I let my church go on hiding their light? Never. I will not abandon them, but I will discipline them. I will humble them. I will prune them and cut them back so that they may bear fruit. Will I not remove the lampstand from the worthless and the silent? Will I not make good on my word? If the salt loses its saltiness, what good is it? Won't it be thrown out and trampled under the feet of man? Won't I destroy religion to preserve the gospel? Won't I raise up a remnant? What more can be said? America has been weighed and it's found wanting. What more can be said? I believe beyond the shadow of a doubt, our Lord and Savior is about to rain down judgment on this nation, starting with the church. Early this spring, I went away and I fasted for several days, just me and the Lord in the mountains. And I came back with, with two heavy things. One was something personally, and the other one was what the Lord said, I always give a window of time. And he opened up the Old Testament to me, and every time that he brought judgment, he always gave a window of time for people to repent and to turn, always. Even with Nineveh, who was not Israel, it was a pagan nation, he still gave them a window of time that he will give them a moment to turn our hearts and to repent. And I believe that the Lord right now in this moment is giving the American church a window of time to repent of their sins, to turn away from this world, to stop conforming to it, to stop attaching the gospel to false teaching and to politics and to this nation, to stop putting their trust into this world, to repent fully of their sins and their toleration and their silence towards wickedness not in the nation, but in the church. To repent of their division and their denominations. To repent and to turn fully and completely to Jesus and to uncover the light that is in our hearts and in our minds and to become the hope of the world because we have Jesus in our lives. I do believe beyond the shadow of a doubt that what's done is done in our country. I think that the division that is here the stress, the distress that we feel and that we felt through this year, that it's not going to stop. That it will continue and it will probably get worse soon. But that is the same notion and the same timing. God will pour out his spirit on his church. And though it may be some of the most difficult years for the American nation, if we will repent and turn, it will be some of the most prosperous years for his people and for the American church but we have to humble ourselves under the hand of God, repent of our sins, and give our souls totally to him and cut off the world and the life around us and become the salt of the earth and the light of the world. I believe without doubt, though this is a difficult message, if we will turn and we will repent, God will pour out his spirit and he will use us to change the world. I love you guys with all of my heart. Though this seems negative, I don't believe that it is. This is a discipline of a loving father. And I repent and I ask you to repent. Give your lives fully to Jesus and let's be a part of what God is doing. Let's pray. Father, I pray, Lord, right now that you will let your spirit and your presence and your power just move, God. 
Father, that you will use this message today, God, in whatever way you see fit. That you will expand this message, Father God, that you will drive it into the hearts and the minds of your church. I pray, Holy Spirit, God, I believe you. I believe you. I trust you. Father, and I am and we are willing to go down whatever path you have for us. And if we suffer, we will suffer for your name. Lord, use us and use this house. God, let us be the light of the world. Let us be the salt of the earth. God, let us uncover the light that is in our hearts. Let us live for the cause of Christ from now until the day we die. In your holy name, amen.